Hello and welcome to the July 2015 Harvard Medical Labcast. This podcast is brought to you by Harvard Medical School's Office of Communications in Boston. I'm David Cameron. And I'm Stephanie Duchin. And in this episode, Stephanie tells us about a really cool experiment where uh, scientists here have taken a circadian clock and transplanted it into another organism. And in today's conversation, David speaks with physician-poet Raphael Campo about the intersection of poetry, literature, and medicine. Now, David, I know I'm not supposed to pick favorites, but I'm a big fan of today's conversation. Oh, man, that's that's totally against the rules. We are <laughs> not allowed to pick favorites here. No, it was... It was a lot of fun talking to him, and the thing that I that really struck me is how Raphael is not a physician and Harvard Medical School professor by day and poet by night, just as if it's you know just a completely different thing, some hobby that he does. But mm-hmm. for him, practicing medicine and writing poetry are deeply interconnected with each other, yeah. and each informs the other in in very profound ways. That mm-hmm. was just really. Uh, I thought delightful to talk about. And uh, the conversation does have a special surprise at the end where Raphael will read us a poem. Oh, spoilers. Yeah, spoiler spoiler alert, but do not fast forward to the poem. (laughs) And uh, yeah. All right, let's hear what he has to say. So, Raphael, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, no, it's it's truly a pleasure. Um, I just want to begin by quoting a poet who, um, another physician poet who you're no doubt uh, familiar with, William Carlos Williams. And this is actually one of my personal favorite quotes from him. He says, it is difficult to get the news from poems, yet men die every day for lack of what is found there. So I'm sure you're familiar with with that. So do you believe that? Yes, I do. I think particularly, you know, through my own lens as a physician, poet, and seeing how so many stories, so many important uh, voices in our culture are silenced uh, by disease, by the experience of illness. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really do think that that it's true that men do die, people do die, uh, for lack of what we do find in poetry, for lack of finding that voice for lack of uh, being heard in our society in a in a broad sense and and so so I do believe that I think um, poets are you know uh, to quote another famous poet who uh, uh, maybe wasn't a physician but we are the unacknowledged uh, legislators perhaps of of our of our of our nations and I think mm. we do have a very very important role to play in thinking about illness, certainly, which is probably one of the most important uh, issues any of us can face in our lives, but also uh, other kinds of issues as well. And and the way in which um, some of these kinds of issues are reflected through the body, through the experience of illness, I think, again, from from my perspective, uh, makes poetry really uh, indispensable. Because really, poetry is a kind of merging of the body and language. And we, I think, when we read poems, we are immersing ourselves deeply in another person's voice, even in Mm -hmm. the sound of another person's body. You know, I find frequently when I'm listening to my patients, you know, hearts through my stethoscope, I'm hearing that iambic rhythm that's so familiar to me from, from reading metrical poetry. And so... So I really think oh, of poems as sort of embodied stories, and uh, and you know I also think of you know the whole 
silence equals death response to the HIV crisis in in this country and elsewhere and and that really had you know particularly profound meaning for me as as a poet because mm-hmm. again I feel that silence really does equal death if we don't right. have a voice in our society if we aren't heard uh, we risk we risk dying take us back to when you first fell in love with poetry. Oh my gosh. Well, in, in my case, it goes way, way back to when I was a kid. And I remember my parents reading poems to me. You know, for them, I think it was a way to tether me, uh, in a sense, to my heritage. In many Latin cultures, particularly in Cuban culture, poetry is uh, is a very important uh, mode of expression. And uh, and uh, some of our, our um, perhaps most most famous poets uh, in Cuban uh, literature were also actually politicians. And uh, Jose Marti, who is considered the the, the father of the Cuban nation, uh, okay. is an important uh, Cuban poet as oh, well. And so, I didn't know that. Yeah, okay. so that was really, I think, a way for them to bridge the kind of fracture uh, I think all of us experienced um, from, you know, from the experience of being exiled, in a sense, here in the U.S., and um, and so so from a very early age, also I associated poetry with you know kind of a broad sense of healing that mm-hmm. that poetry could heal this wound of of the loss of of Cuba, the loss of mm. our homeland, and uh, and so I, I from a very early age even had that you know kind of connection about the power of poetry, what poetry could do to to heal, to connect people, uh, even across a pretty traumatic experience as as, as my family had leaving Cuba. And and then I knew also, you know, because of being different, you know, and also perceiving my difference from most of my peers at that early age, I I, I knew I was, you know, I was Latino, you know, Cuban, I knew I was gay, and I knew that, you know, I was different in some ways. And, and you know, whenever I read poems, I felt connected to other people. Mm-hmm. I felt that even though I might be perceived as different, you know, in these ways, that poetry could really still connect me across those differences to other okay. people and really give me again that you know wonderful sense of 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 shared humanity of community of connectedness and um i think that's one of the reasons we go to poetry actually is uh even even now when we have all these other media uh to uh entertain us i think we still always come to poetry for that really visceral sense of connection to other people it was i recently heard a a comment, uh, an old quote from David Foster Wallace, where mm. he was talking about literature um, existing to help us with our loneliness. Yes, and absolutely. And I think you could say literature broadly and, and you know, works of creative self-expression broadly, I think, uh, can can help us, uh, you know, in that sense. Um, but I think poetry in particular has, because of its musicality and because mm-hmm. of the intimacy of the experience of of that other voice, really, you know, very, very powerfully connects us to one another. Does uh, um, does the tradition of Cuban poetry and that you heard what you were just saying when you were very young, has that influenced your style of poetry, do you think? In some ways, I think it, it has. Um, you know, Spanish, first of all, is is so musical. Uh, and so so I've always been drawn to, to metrical so-called formal poetry, poetry that rhymes, received forms, which, as it turns out, probably not surprisingly, have their roots in the Romance languages. So um, 
So when I write poetry in English, uh, I think some of what I'm trying to do is actually to make English sound like Spanish. I, I love okay. that you know <laughs> musical quality of the of the language, and so so yeah, I think those early experiences of reading and hearing read uh, Cuban poets um, is part of what you know draws me to the kind of poetry that I write now and that I uh, like to read. How do you how do your colleagues react to your work and and then the follow-up to that is how do your patients Mm. react to your work because they show up in it they certainly do and um i guess i would say you know my colleagues generally i think are intrigued by it um i think that you know they are sometimes a little skeptical of it uh i think that sense and i guess in the sense that you know there's there's such an imperative in medicine to know, and in particular to know all the facts. You know, we are always obsessed with, you know, the data. What is the potassium level and how many lymph nodes were positive on the CT scan? All very important ways mm-hmm. of knowing and understanding about illness. Um, when when I start thinking about poetry in relation to illness, you know, I think, you know, it raises often a lot of uncertainty and a lot of, uh, uh, if you will, kind of gray areas or 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 when we get into issues relating to the voice and the subjectivity of stories and of narratives, you know, that can be, I think, really threatening to people who are so used to dealing all the time with objective data. Right. Okay. And, uh, and, you know, with poems, I think more often are asking questions and answering them, although they certainly can answer questions as well. You know, it's more important to, you know, understand the pain on a one to 10 scale than it is to, you know, really uh, understand the metaphor that the patient is using to describe the pain that feels like a cold wind blowing through my liver or, you know, something that, you know, okay. we might uh, as doctors sort of say, well, what what does that mean? You know, well, as doctors, we ought to really think about what does that mean uh, and not necessarily boil everything down and reduce everything to a one to 10 scale or you know, uh, some kind of uh, Likert, you know, assessment or what have you. Those are useful tools. And, and um, but I, I worry that in medicine, we are more and more uh, focused on simple competencies and scripts uh, and uh, algorithmic approaches to mm-hmm. the suffering of our patients and checklists and all these things we hear, you know, popularized in, in, uh, in, in commentary about medical practice these days and, and less and less, you know, engaged in a, in a meaningful way with the actual experience of suffering. There's so much more depth and, and richness to the experience of illness that we miss by, by simply focusing on competencies and, and certainly by distancing ourselves, which is also very much part of medical education. And, you know, that, uh, that it's um, for years we actually actively taught what was conceived of as detached concern because hmm. there was some anxiety around, well, if you, if you feel anything for the patient or, or attempt to feel what the patient is feeling, that your judgment might be clouded. You're going to, you know, uh, not treat the arrhythmia with the proper drug, or you're going to, you know, uh, because your eyes are filling with tears, not see the the you know the the shadow on the chest X-ray that diagnoses the the lung cancer. You know, these are, you know, unfortunately, um, you know. Uh, Myths, I think, that have never been borne out by any data for for a profession that's obsessed with data. Uh, there's really <laughs> no data to support any of this. So, how do your your patients respond 
to uh, either your work or you as a poet or even if they Well, I'm really lucky. I have, I guess, sort of a self-selected group of patients because many of them have encountered my work in one place or another and okay. have come to me because they you only are poets? looking for a doctor. <laughs> right, 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 exactly. Not only poets, although I have a few poets uh, I take care of, but... Um, but I think they have encountered my work in one place or another, and, and they're looking for a doctor who they hope listens and uh, will uh, work together with them as an ally rather than as a stereotype of the, of the doctor who just you know, tells, tells you what to do and gives you the prescription. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. you know, I, think, uh, I think my patients, I, I hope my patients – you know, uh, really uh, feel a, a different kind of engagement uh, that we're working together to help them uh, with their uh, illnesses, and 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 again, part of that is really you know empathetic listening and and uh, and and really understanding narrative and 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 really connecting with them through language and. You know, we have studies these days that show that doctors you know interrupt patients within the first you know three minutes of the encounter and okay. the poor patient right. never gets a word in edgewise. I mean, yeah. I hope the experience my patients have is very different that, you know, what I want to do when I'm with them is actually to hear their stories and to really listen to them. You know, I think, you know, we like to forget in medicine that we are all at some point in our illness narratives uh, going to get to that place where there isn't another round of chemotherapy. There isn't going to be another pill to prescribe. There isn't, you know, unfortunately, uh, another procedure to be done, and what we're going to need at that moment is the doctor who can listen and who can be present in the ICU and talk to our family members in a meaningful way, uh, and and to warm our hands uh, when we are alone in that setting. Um, you know, those kinds of ways of healing, I think, are are terribly undervalued in our moment. And so that actually, it's it kind of brings us very clearly into in another uh, issue I wanted to bring up for you, with you. Um, you know, uh, Atul Gawande has oh, yes. written his recent book, um, Being Mortal, and it's just talking about how, you know, the medical profession is not traditionally been very good at talking about these very things. Yes, yeah. um, and when I'm reading your poetry, and, e- and even in an almost random flipping around, especially the second part mm. of your most recent book, Alternative Medicine, just I came across a, a few lines, um, someone is dying alone in the night. Mm. Uh, another poem, the dead moved quietly around the room mm. unseen. And another one, which begins with the line, uh, the doctors had to let the patients die. Mm. So uh, now this clearly har- hardly sets you apart from poets. But, <laughs> yes, we are uh, a little obsessed with that. <laughs> right. But, you know, it, it's not, as we were just saying, it's not something that is, you know, in, in that physicians uh, traditionally talk about. And mm. I'm just, I guess the question there is, does, is poetry helping give voice to that mm. which the profession itself is not comfortable with? Yes, I think that's a great question too, David. I think that indeed we you know, uh, I think turn to poetry to help us at those moments when we don't have technologies that are going to help keep us alive any longer, when we need that comfort, that sense of healing, when perhaps, unfortunately, again, there isn't going to be a cure. And so what do we have when we are confronting death? What are, what do we have when we're confronting intractable, untreatable pain? What do we have uh, that heals when we are 
dealing with profound depression that doesn't respond to you know the medication that's being prescribed. You know, well, what we have is the mirror of literature, of of art, of the humanities more broadly. I think to reflect our experience back to us, and to remind us that we're not alone in these experiences. That that indeed doctors do have a role at the end of life. We shouldn't all run in the opposite direction and oh, you know, call the chaplain. You know, I I, I can't deal with this situation. Mm. You know, or or the social worker, or you know, that's the nurse's job is to you know get the hospice worker in here. You know, it's actually our job. It's our duty. It's part of our role, I think, as as care providers, as healers in a broad sense, to be present at those moments. And and it's extraordinary, I think, what, you know, we often think, I, I, I you know, when we don't have an intervention to prescribe, as you were suggesting, well, our, our job is done. You know, what else is there to do? You know, the, the, you know, we can't take anything else out. We can't you know, uh, there's not another pill. You know, what? Well, I can't prescribe anything else. Um, but we have so much, I think, to offer in those mm-hmm. moments, especially if we've accompanied the patient through the experience of illness to that point. When we need narratives and poetry and, and the humanities the most in medicine, what we've done, ironically, I think, is is removed ourselves even more from the human experience of illness and and placed more barriers between ourselves and our patients mm, okay. to sort of insulate ourselves. And, and again, to my mind, these shouldn't be, you know, either or, you know, right. propositions. I don't see why we we can't integrate them more effectively. And, and yes, be very concerned about, you know, correcting someone's, you know, uh, abnormal electrolyte, you know, uh, level, but but also care about, you know, how we convey our treatment plan to to the patient and, and and his family. You know, how do we how do we communicate that clearly and effectively so so we all understand why we're doing what we're doing and and what our goals are for doing these kinds of things. Um, so you talked about finding poetry in the stories that patients tell, in the metaphors that they use. Where else do you find that in your practice? It's un- unbelievably overt in in so many ways i think uh you know i think of really every encounter with a patient really as a as a form of poetry uh because it really does if i'm doing my job right it really does entail attentive deeply immersed listening uh which is certainly like reading a poem or 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 hearing a poem um, I think also, you know, even in the body language of patients, I see poetry uh, manifest I, the, the gestures they make and the the way they're they they carry themselves and hmm. you know hold themselves when they're describing what they're feeling. Uh, so deep noticing. Yes, it's it, like it's here. about looking closely. I mean, that's another thing that poems do uh, brilliantly uh, and can teach doctors about. Um, you know, is, is how to really look closely at a patient, you know, to hear closely, uh, listen closely to what they're saying, but also how to see them, I think, more clearly, uh, and how to describe what we hear and what we see. You know, when we look at an x-ray, you know, it's not that different from looking at a painting or studying a poem. I mean, you know, how is that image composed? How are, what are the elements? How would we describe it to a colleague? You know, these are, Mm. are really important skills for physicians to uh, have and and it to re- develop. It reminds me of uh, what James Wood, the the critic, talks all about saying. I've heard him say many times, "Great 
writers are great noticers. Yes, and especially great poets, I think, are great noticers. And and so um, so yes, it's you know it's about what we observe, what details we can see in the interaction. I think that um, really are at the level of of poetry in a real sense. Um, you know, I think also about, you know, I talked a little bit about this before, but the, also the music of the body and the rhythms that the heart makes, that the, the breathe, that, you know, are present in breathing. You know, that's poetry also. That, that's that's the probably the most fundamental form of poetry we can know is, you know, the poetry of our, the sounds our bodies make. And we're exposed to that music from before we have, you know, conscious memory. In in the womb, we hear our, our mother's heartbeat. Uh, and that probably is partly uh, what informs our, our, you know, even unconscious, I would say, uh, attraction to musical language. I mean, a lot of just conversational language is iambic in nature, iambic pentameter. If you, right, right. you know, common phrase, you know, a cup of coffee and a slice of toast, that's iambic pentameter. <laughs> you know, so I, I'm always, you know, it's Poetry hearing, at Dunkin' Donuts. Yes, exactly, yeah. right. You know, you hear it all the time if you're listening for it. Uh, you hear it even more uh, clearly, I think. So, so yeah. So even through the stethoscope, uh, it's present in, in in those interactions. Could you read us a poem? Of course. Oh, gosh, give me a minute, and I'll yeah, I'll just read switch. for an hour. Yeah. <laughs> um, I you know I was saying before how you know colleagues always say oh you can't teach empathy or you can't uh, you know empathy is this intangible we don't even know how to how to define empathy and. Um, but my response to that often is that, you know, even if we can't define it or if it's hard for us to teach it, I think at the very least we can model it more effectively and we can certainly uh, perhaps enact it. And one way to do that is through poems and narratives, bringing those into rounds, bringing those mm-hmm. into, you know, the clinic setting and sharing them, not just with our patients, but actually with each other, with our colleagues. And so this is a poem I like to read as a, that, that's sort of a, an example of, you know, maybe uh, a kind of definition of empathy or an enactment of empathy. And, uh, you know, so when people say, oh, you can't define it, well, I say, here's a poem that that describes it anyway. And um, I don't know, maybe it's worth reading that one. It's a short one. So. Go for it. So this is iatrogenic. You say, I do this to myself. Outside, my other patients wait. Maybe snow falls. We're all just waiting for our deaths to come. We're all just hoping it won't hurt too much. You say, it makes it seem less lonely here. I study them as if the deep red cuts were only wounds, as if they didn't hurt so much. The way you hold your upturned arms, the cuts seem aimed at your unshaven face. Outside, my other patients wait their turns. I run gloved fingertips along their course, as if I could touch pain itself, as if by touching pain I might alleviate my own despair. You say, it's snowing, Doc. The snow, instead of howling, soundlessly comes down. I think you think it's beautiful. I say, this isn't all about the snow, is it? The way you hold your upturned arms, I think about embracing you, but don't. I think we do this to ourselves. I think the falling snow explains itself to us, blinding, 
faceless and so deeply wounding. So that's a poem about empathy. Well, thank you. Um, maybe about empathy, I guess. I think it's about empathy. <laughs> Raphael, thank you so much for thank joining you. us. Thank you. It was, was my great. pleasure. Thank you for the great questions, and thank you for your time. And now for this month's abstract. Biological clocks. Master controllers of the sleep-wake cycle, body temperature, appetite, hormone release, and other daily oscillations known as circadian rhythms. Most of the Earth's plants and animals, even microbes, have these circadian clocks, but some don't. Like the bacterium E. coli. A team led by systems biologist Pamela Silver of Harvard Medical School and the Wies Institute has, for the very first time, transplanted a circadian clock into a non-circadian organism. Silver and colleagues extracted the circadian protein circuit from individual microbes called cyanobacteria and implanted the clocks into the non-circadian E. coli. Silver's team connected the clocks to other E. coli genes related to metabolism and behavior. They also tagged the clocks with fluorescent proteins designed to light up when circadian oscillations were triggered. When the E. coli began to glow rhythmically, they knew the transplant was a success. Silver's team imagines one day delivering their engineered circadian E. coli in pill form to deliver drugs at precise times in our bodies, or to sense and influence our circadian rhythms. That can possibly treat conditions such as glucose intolerance and cancer, and even jet lag. This podcast is a production of Harvard Medical School's Office of Communications. Thanks to our amazing producer, Rick Rollo, and thanks to everyone who listened. To learn more about the research discussed in this episode, or to let us know what you think, visit hms.harvard.edu slash podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at HarvardMed, or like us on Facebook.